You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 23 of the Climbing Advocate podcast entitled, This Is Us Too. I was joined for this episode by three guests. They include Tamur Ahmed, who is an Access Fund staff member and their JETI fellow. Second is Bethany Lebowitz, who is an Access Fund board member and founder of Brown Girls Climb. And finally, Kenji Harotunian, who is also an Access Fund board member. I had them on to discuss some current and very timely topics, including justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, hence the JETI acronym, just like Star Wars and social justice nationally on a broad scale, and of course, how it all relates back to climbing. Tamara served as my co-host on this episode, and I was very grateful to have him on to help drive this conversation. He asked very insightful questions and also provided some very insightful responses into the questions I asked as well. So I kind of took a back seat for this one. I didn't talk as much as I, as I usually do, and I was, I was really psyched on that, this, this, this topic is a sensitive one for a lot of folks and it's an opportunity for folks to be to learn and to listen and learn and understand where everyone's coming from so i took this opportunity to be just be a sponge and soak up everything these three folks had to say on this topic and i had several requests for this episode and i think it's the first time where i had numerous friends and fellow climbers reach out and be like hey peter you gotta you gotta get an episode out soon on this topic in light of all the very heavy social events we've seen this year. And I think that really speaks to the dots being connected between social justice and what we have going on in our climbing community. And I state in the episode, social justice transcends just about everything in our lives. And we're discovering more and more the congruency between social justice and rock climbing. So Tamara gives us a very nice intro and gets the introductions rolling for the guests. And then we get into the meat of the conversation discussing how their experiences and their experiences just in the outdoors have been impacted by their identities and the very hot current topic of root naming and the redacting of offensive root names. And then we get their thoughts on what the climbing community has done so far at what makes them optimistic for the future and what the future holds for climbing and social justice. It was, it was just fascinating. So the, this conversation runs, runs deep and it, it was a long one clocking in about an hour and a half and I'm excited to share it with you all. So let's get it going. Please enjoy my conversation with Tamur, Bethany and Kenji. Welcome to episode number 23. This is us too. Uh, my name is Tamur Ahmed and I work for Access Fund. Um, I do JEDI work for Access Fund, which stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. 
You may have been seeing those terms a lot in the last couple months. And uh, if you're kind of curious what those words mean, specifically in the context that we're talking about them here, you can check out the Access Fund blog. Where we've got a few articles on these topics. But um, it's been fascinating to see um, this summer how issues of social justice and racial justice, uh, root naming, and all these different um, issues of equity and diversity have been really coming to the forefront in the climate community and how our community has really been grappling with them. And it's really awesome to see uh, that these topics become so important. But I think one thing that sometimes gets a little lost in these conversations we have around justice and equity are who these topics are actually impacting. And sometimes it feels like when we're talking about social justice in the climate community, we're talking about people somewhere else, like, oh, maybe those folks in that city over there are struggling with this, or I know it's a really important issue, but I don't actually know anyone who it's personal for, or whatever the case may be. And I think one thing we want to make clear in this podcast is that when we talk about issues of social justice in the climate community, we're talking about us too, right? You know, Access Fund uh, is diverse. Our staff is diverse. Our board is diverse. And holds many different identities that are definitely directly impacted by by social justice and climbing and by Jedi. And so with that said, I want to turn it over to our um, participants and have uh, Bethany and Kenji introduce themselves. And y'all can just tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and, and what you do and what your relationship to Access Fund is. Yeah, I can pop in. Um, yeah, my name is Bethany Lebowitz, um, but folks call me Betty or Bethy. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers, um, and I'm located on Ute Arapaho Cheyenne um, land, um, also known as the Boulder Superior Area in Colorado. I currently um, am involved in Brown Girls Climb. I'm a founder, the founder of Brown Girls Climb, um, but that I've worked collectively with Laura Edmondson, Montserrat Alvarez, Bernie Levitt, Seisha McGee, and Jael Berger to kind of lead uh, within that community. And also um, am an Access Board, uh, Access Fund board member, along with being a coach for Beast Fingers Climbing Team uh, out here in um, the Denver area. So yeah, that's me. My name is Kenji Haratunian. I am uh, on this call from the Tongva Territory, which is in Southern California. I'm a native Angelino, born and raised in Los Angeles. And uh, I am, oh, uh, he, him is my pronouns, which is, an, which is important because sometimes Kenji is a name that people don't, uh, are not sure. So it's fun when I get mail or cold calls. I am a board member of the Access Fund. In fact, I'm in my ninth year, my final year as a board member of the Access Fund. And I came to the Access Fund from Friends of Joshua Tree, which is a local climbing organization here in Southern California that's been around since 1991, advocating for access and for the health of the climbing resource, particularly in Joshua Tree National Park. Uh, I work in the outdoor industry as an advocate. Um, I'm an event organizer, event manager, and event strategist. And um, I I was the show director of Outdoor Retailer for eight years, and I also run an event uh, called the Big Gear Show, as well as a few other events like Climb Smart, which happened in Joshua Tree. And uh, and Kenji's being humble, but he has a, an award 
for diversity, equity, inclusion in the outdoors named after him. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for that. And I also do um, have advocated for a DEI in, in the outdoor industry for a very long time, um, even in, in the 80s, 1980s, that is, in the last millennium, I worked with the Outward Bound uh, Urban Youth Project, which was here in Los Angeles, which is really my first exposure to work of inclusion and creating a more diverse core, which at that point was the, the instructors and teachers working for Outward Bound, who at that time were not very diverse and, and have been bringing that of my learnings there and trying to learn more and more about it forward into the industry um, through my role with Outdoor Retailer primarily. Well, that's something to be incredibly proud of. I'm glad I learned that little tidbit about you. Uh, <laughs> you've been working at DEI since the 80s, is that what you said? Yes. That's, that's, that that kind of blew me away a little bit because I haven't really started hearing about this stuff till very recently. Uh, Kenji's an OG. Yeah. <laughs> just want to throw a quick question out there on that. Like, what, how have you seen that progress over the last 30 years? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because the industry and the community of climbers has moved uh, over that period of time, but also the whole methodology and, and the language and, and the whole premise of inclusion and diversity has changed over that time too. Meaning what I mean by that is we had a different idea of what we were trying to do in the eighties around diversity and diversifying uh, a, an instructor core or diversifying a group of people uh, at Outward Bound, including the, what are they called? The trustees and the leadership. And, and at that time it was still the, the world of, uh, I would call it uh, the melting pot, right? We're all trying to um, kind of achieve this sameness and it's not so much about equity or equality, it was, it was kind of, it was more about coming to some common ground around behavior and um, how we did things. And it didn't really celebrate people's differences and it didn't elevate marginalized communities or, you know, in, in that way, it didn't, it didn't help us become who we were and celebrate who we were and then bring that to the table and keep and hold that as uh, important or even sacred as we gathered around the table. So I, that's what changed. That's probably the most important thing that's changed in the meantime is that we've come around to a different way of seeing diversity and inclusion, which is more uh, honoring people from where they're coming from and then uh, including them at an equitable stake at, at, at a table or gathering point. So, and that's taken 30 plus years, right? Just to kind of make that turn. And so I see this also as a very slow and uh, incremental movement that's taken a long time, but, but I have seen it change a lot. Um, in my role with Outdoor Retailer, for example, I have had access not just to the show itself, but to the statistics and to the metrics of who's attending and what is their average age. And we didn't really measure uh, race or um, uh, or religion or ability or sexual uh, or gender preference or anything like that. But even just the basic numbers around age were really revealing about what was changing in the industry. And when I say the industry, that's 
that's the manufacturers and supply chain and organizations that purchase gear and retailers and professional athletes, et cetera, that make up the greater ecosystem of the, of the outdoor recreation space um, on the industri- in, industry side. So I have seen it change a lot and it's, and it's been good and it's been positive. And so I see a lot of the most recent activity as a, as a great opportunity to charge forward with a little more speed. You know, we've been chugging along at a snail's pace and it's frustrating sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Just like a lot of other things we see in the advocacy world, they move slow, but with consistency, persistence, uh, we do see change over time. So that is encouraging to hear that you're encouraged as well. And we'll get into that here towards the end, I think. But uh, well, thanks for the intros. Uh, you guys got a, a, a very healthy background in this field. And I'm really excited to talk to all three of you today about all this. So bringing it back towards the beginning for, for, the, uh, for the rest of you, Kenji gave us a great intro into how you got involved in this and, and everything. So this question goes out to all three of you. When did you first realize that this was impacting your climbing experience? Was was there something happening to you personally, or was there something you were witnessing to your friends or others, kind of on the on the periphery, on the outside? Um, this is Betty. I can answer this at least from my point of view. Um, for me, um, so I'm. This is kind of. I'll try to make this as brief as possible, but. Um, I'm a first gen college graduate and um, I ended up getting a job um, doing research in DC um, and kind of working in the professional space for the first time. I've been climbing for about 10 years. I don't really know, something around there. I moved out to DC, got a job where like culturally it was very different, high SES, high um, high education in the DC area in terms of like working in that space, um, the climbing community out there coming from Texas was like extremely diverse to me. I was like blown away about by the amount of, um, people of color in the gym. And, um, it was really exciting for me to, to see that, um, that diversity. It was um, less of a income diversity, which has been an issue in the climbing community for a while. So it's again, high SES, high ed um, across the board um, for the climbers there, but a lot more racial representation. Um, I'm biracial Mexican-American. My dad is, is white, but like English, Scottish heritage, trying to amplify that a little bit more um, or re-identify with that aspect of his identity. But you know, I really wanted to, I, I used to work in or be involved in more advocacy, child welfare, lower income communities of color. And so moving out and kind of entering this new space, I felt really disconnected with the work that I used to do. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about this diversity and representation within the gym and how I personally could get connected with more communities of color, especially during this like kind of stressful political time for many communities. And, um, you know, climbing's always been super therapeutic. But what I noticed is like when I went outside to like the New River Gorge or Seneca, uh, Cooper's Rock, shout out to all those areas because they're great, um, was that it was that representation in the gym completely dropped off. And that's where all like the DMV area climbers go to. That's kind of the backyard, um, even though it's like five hours away. Um, and I was climbing one day with my partner, who's also white. And I looked around and I was like, holy moly, like 
there is no one here that looks like me. And I really wanted to talk about these issues. Um, but I also knew that like that conversation is totally different with white climbers than it is Mexican climbers or climbers of color. Um, and I just imagine for a moment, like what would this crowd look like if there was that same representation in the gym outside that there was different, you know, shades of brown outside. And, um, it was a really comforting moment to think about, but it also like for the rest of the day, I really couldn't climb that much um, just because I was really distracted. And those, um, those issues were really felt really close to my heart, close to my mind in the moment. So it was hard for me to focus on, you know, completing my project. Um, and that's kind of, was the space that I was, that kind of sprung ground climb, like as an Instagram initially, just like, how can I get connected with all these people in the gym without, you know, <laughs> just strolling up to them and being like, yo, you know, hey, you're brown, I'm brown, um, but trying to like find a way to amplify those experiences in the DMV area initially. But yeah, um, you know, I'd been climbing for a while, but that was the first time that I kind of felt it in such a degree. I noticed it in Austin when I first started climbing too. Um, but yeah, really in that point in my life, it felt super amplified. So how much time between that event or that moment you had at the crag and starting your organization was there, was that sort of your, I guess, tipping point for the lack of a better term moving forward to starting Brown Girls Climb? Yeah, I started the Instagram like that day. (laughs) I think it was was Halloween. Um, And I didn't really want it. I wasn't on Instagram or any of that before, but I reached out to my friend, Amon Anderson, and then my brother, um, Micah, who, you know, both of these folks are like into more into kind of, or not organizing per se, but just like social media and the power of social media. And so they were like, you should do this. And um, I had been trying to look for groups or orgs within climbing for for a while also because I was just like I want to get connected and I, I didn't really know too much about social media and Instagram so there were groups there were groups like Brothers of Climbing on um, but I didn't know you know it's hard to know where they are if you don't know like those search terms or like I don't know if you're new to social media so started the Instagram like right after um, and then like as like organizing wise and kind of doing beyond like just creating a resource for me uh, and my relationships like that didn't start until um, a little bit later. I met Brittany Lovett and reached out to her. Um, she was organizing locally in DC for Afro. And I was like, well, you know, I have some skills, you know, I can belay some people. If any members of outdoor Afro want to come and climb, like I'd love to get connected, but I also want to share this skill with others. And that kind of really, um, started the you know, meetups and organizing aspect. And later we had uh, more women uh, of color reach out. And that is now like our leadership team we see today. I'm glad you mentioned uh, leadership because that was a question that's I've been wanting to ask you for a while is because that word comes up on your, on your website uh, several times when you talk about leadership. And I wanted to kind of gauge your, your definition of leadership and why that is such a strong component of your organization's mission. Yeah, I think the language here is really important. Like when I was, you know, when we were thinking about expanding, we had thought of, thought about like ambassador 
or, you know, I don't know, something like that. And it just, it felt like very top down and the, the really, it was really intentional using that word. Cause we were like, well, you know, we all have different experiences, whether that's, um, ethnic or racial or, um, geographical, or if we're looking at like our immigrant or our um, citizenship status, et cetera. Um, and so we thought the term leadership really was an opportunity to empower others, other women, black and indigenous women of color to like use whatever space and resources and identity they have to show up in the way that they felt, you know, called to do and felt equipped to do, um, you know, we recognize that there is a lot of different, there's a lot of diversity within our community. Um, and in order to kind of address this issue of like um, justice and equity and representation, we have to look at those differences and appreciate them. And so um, we really tried to lead from that perspective. And I think Kegji, you know, kind of mentioned that these, these priorities have changed over time. Um, there's a lot of folks that have been working on this issue for a while. Um, our strength, I think, um, is really looking at making space for that conversation um, with the goal that we can lead better. And so as we enter positions, advance positions, advancement in terms of like certifications for outdoors or something like that, or in the industry that we look around and say, which voices aren't missing and how can we um, open this up so that other folks can lead also, because we have to lead together. um, And, and that, you know, folks experiences in the outdoors um, can often be facilitated by who's around them and who's like teaching them or who's guiding them or who's, you know, just sharing the space with them. So it doesn't matter if you're like a rock guide or if you're just kind of the belay person to, to show someone, um, or facilitate that experience for the first time. Like you are a leader in, in whatever, and whatever skill to skill area you are in right now, whatever developmental area you're in, we're all kind of leaders in the climbing community um, by just having those skills. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I, I don't know if that <laughs> answered your question, but that's, that's definitely our approach to developing leaders regionally, locally, uh, and, and our team as well. Awesome. Thank you. Very powerful stuff. I appreciate that. Kenji, how about yourself? When did you first realize that your identity impacted your climbing experience? Uh, well, uh, as the old guy, I think that's what OG stands for, right? <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> not quite that. But um, yeah, back in uh, when I started working at A16 or Adventure 16, which is a retail shop here in Los Angeles or actually based in San Diego, and uh, they had a, a, a store that was where I bought my first pair of hiking boots as a, as a scout. Uh, but really that awareness came when I started working there and, and I had a name badge, right. And I, people used my name a lot and my name kind of reveals my identity and, and it, it shapes, you know, I can't really escape that. Like if you just know a little bit about uh, language, you know, Kenji is a Japanese name and you know, Harutunian is not, and oh, it's an Armenian name. And, you can put the pieces together. And, and so people I would meet, um, you know, on the sales floor or at, then when I started teaching outdoor skills, starting with map and compass, 
and then becoming a climber through uh, the influence and invitation of other people that worked for the company, that's where I really started to um, to understand who else was in the climbing community and why where I was just very different. So I think it's kind of fundamental um, because I grew up in a place like Los Angeles, which is it, which is very diverse and always has been. Even in my area, you know, I grew up in the city, uh, born in in the inner city, and then coming to Culver City, which is still kind of in the inner city, but a little west of the inner city. Uh, the the fact that there were different people and with different looks and different influences in my life um, was a little more normalizing. And until I came to the A16 shop and started teaching with Wilderness Outings and other programs like Outward Bound. Yeah, Kenji, I definitely, the, what you're saying about the name being an identifier definitely uh, resonates with me since even though a lot of uh, Americans won't even have ever heard the word somewhere before, it definitely marks you as, as different. <laughs> right. And, and, it, and it becomes a thing that they want to talk about or ask questions about. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it gets, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but it's certainly in the context of who else was uh, working in the shop, the customer base of that particular store, the people that were also instructors and the, the clients that would uh, hire us, you know, it was it was um, not particularly diverse, given that we were in Los Angeles. It was a subset of that. And, you know, mostly uh, wealthier, sort of not too many uh, people of color. And so I, I think that's that's where my awareness came from. And then through the experience with Outward Bound, you know, it it was brought to my attention in a way that the instructor core nationwide, you know, coming out of Colorado or uh, Seattle or East Coast um, was almost entirely white and very much male. I mean, almost very, very few um, women who were, well, you know, kind of pulled into it or were able to push against the misogyny and the, just the assumption that women don't, you know, are not rugged outdoor individuals. They do other things or something. So there was a lot of that to a lot of, you know, a lot of that really presented opportunity because for a person like me uh, um, who, you know, I present Brown and a lot of people come up to me and speak Spanish because they think I'm uh, Hispanic and uh, maybe because I'm in L.A., but also because I'm uh, I, I just, you know, that's how I look. So so I was a little bit of their poster child, uh, you know, in recruiting and bringing up somebody who could be more authentic in conversations with. And, and the whole goal of that Outward Bound program, which they abandoned only after a couple of years, but the goal was to develop instructors from the communities so that there was a better connection because uh, it was, it was kind of awkward to bring in, you know, guides and instructors from the front range and from, you know, um, the, the mountain towns and they'd come in to the city and meet with uh, these kids um, who were, who were our, you know, uh, students and take them out on these amazing adventures. And then they'd fly back into the sky. I, I call them the Vikings, you know, like they bring, they come in, they, they teach the, they bring this amazing uh, experience to young people here. And then, and then they fly back into the sky and then the kids are kind of wondering what to do with that. Like, um, yeah, I don't know if I could do that, but that was pretty cool. And then they go kind of go back to their, uh, 
their lives in the city. So anyway, I think that's kind of where my head's at when I asking that question, because uh, of course, identity is a complex thing. At least for me, it is. Thanks, Kenji. Uh, my my wife is a former outward bound instructor. So I think that's something else we could be proud of and see a tangible example of something changing dramatically over the years. Uh, yeah. Just relating back to what we talked to her about earlier. Tamar, do you have uh, do you have anything you want to add to your personal experience with this question? Sure, I'll just give a quick um, a quick one. Basically, you know, I grew up in New York City, uh, which was super diverse, obviously, and I started climbing at Rat Rock in Central Park. Uh, this was kind of just before climbing gyms really exploded, before gym climbing, indoor climbing got really big, and um, so the crew that I kind of came up with was very eccentric, very diverse. You know, Ashima was one of the first people I climbed with. So I was very used to having this like, you know, tiny six-year-old girl be able to easily crank problems that I had no chance at from day one. <laughs> and um, awesome. so, yeah, it was, you know, I, I kind of just had this in some ways skewed vision of the climbing community, including the outdoor climbing community as being just like the rest of New York City because, you know, these boulders, Rat Rock is in Central Park, which is in the midtown Manhattan. Um, but, you know, I took this Knowles course when I was 15 and uh, one of my instructors was Kenyan. He was he was from Kenya and he was a very accomplished mountaineer, a pretty well-known Knowles instructor named KG. And I didn't really think anything of it because, you know, coming from New York again, it was like, yeah, you know, this is this is normal. But then at the very end of the course, uh, on the last day of the course, the the instructors give all the students kind of an individual debrief and evaluation and KG told me, he was like, you know, um, you should really stick with, with outdoor education. You should really stick with uh, the outdoor industry uh, as a field. And I asked him, well, yeah, I mean, I love doing this, but, but why? And he said, well, there's just, there's just not that many you know, people like us. He said something like that. I don't think he even said people of color. Said, there's not that, many, there's not that many, many people like us in this field. And that is, that is the first time I ever thought about um, – that, you know, race or ethnicity or identity would even have the slightest impact on your outdoor experience. So for me, that was like, it's a very single crystallized moment where my, my Knowles instructor uh, from Kenya was like, this is a thing. That's what it was for me. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's a powerful statement. There's not many people like us. I mean, that's like, that's very punctuated, right? Yeah. So when I first started learning about inclusion in the outdoors, I thought at the time, which is probably just a couple of years ago when I first really started hearing about this, I thought it mostly focused on getting more people of color outdoors, breaking down barriers to access and working towards making people feel more welcome in this space. And in light of recent events this year, I've come to realize that it involves just so much more than that. And after the killing of George Floyd, a lot of environmental organizations stood up and voiced their stance on that incident. I don't want to disregard any of the other recent killings this year, uh, especially the one that we're on the heels of over the weekend in uh, Wisconsin, but Georgia seems to be the one that broke the camel's back and environmental organizations and outdoor businesses, they all said something immediately and started addressing this issue of social justice in the outdoors. And I saw, or just social justice in general, and I saw a whole bunch of comments on social media questioning why these organizations and businesses were getting involved in this matter. A lot of negative questioning. And it, was, it seems just so obvious to me that they should be getting involved because these issues transcend just about everything. And social justice is something that has become very synonymous with climbing these days. And I think 
that environmental, environmental issues are social issues. And I think as climbers, we like to think of ourselves as environmentally friendly. We love our lands. We love our waters. We fight for protection, access to these places. So I think it's a no-brainer to me that we need to fight for equality as well. So another question posed to all three of you, why does social justice matter for the climbing community? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, I'm gonna, I'll just jump in. I think obviously you said it, um, Peter, that social justice matters for everything. And I guess it boils down to me of like outdoor recreation, like climbing is a healthy practice that uh, is a leisure activity. It's not one of, it's not in the hierarchy of needs. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's air and water and, and shelter and clothing, like the you know, food, these are the must haves. And if you're not getting those and safety and, and, uh, a feeling of safety and, or at least the lack of too much existential fear, uh, is, is important before you can practice any kind of leisure. Like that's leisure is not, um, on the list of must have. So, I see it that way. I think that the climbing community is, uh, is great. I I'm, I've been hooked on it, uh, with a passion for over 30 years. And, and I think it brings so much to so many people and, um, without, without a massive downside, I mean, you have to be thoughtful and there's obviously risk involved, but so much opportunity for people's personal growth and camaraderie and, and, um, really pushing your own limits. But, if people can't breathe, if they can't run, if they can't exist in dominated spaces, then uh, then there's really a, a very limited amount of ability for us to bring the climbing experience, which is really special. I think there's not many things that do what climbing does and can do for individuals and for people in communities, but they can't do it if they can't breathe. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Kingji, and kind of uh, points to how I would answer this. And I'll kind of piggyback off what Kingji says and and move towards like um, a couple other different answers. Yeah, I mean, and especially in terms of like how we um, conceptualize our place in in the outdoors. Um, there are there are and have been a lot of people um, working in. Um, in the social justice space as it relates to the outdoors. And so looking at climate justice organizations, environmental justice organizations. And so for me, this is like a very intersectional topic. Like if we're looking at access and we're looking at um, kind of preserving or protecting, if you want to use that language, or um, the outdoors and, and these climbing areas, we have to kind of look at these other initiatives going on and seeing how what are we missing in terms of how we advocate for, for the spaces that we appreciate and um, how can we kind of align our values so that it really does protect all of us, like, um, or at least instill some values about um, that, that breaks down like this compartmentalization. I think traditionally environmental organizations have, have really taken a, a, I don't know the technical word, but kind of an anti-human point of view, right? Like they've really looked at at humans as a as um, a dangerous um, as like point of uh, in the environmental conversation to a point that 
specifically communities of color, black community, um, indigenous communities have been um, harmed in this conversation. And so for me, like this is a, this is a big point of growth for the climbing community. I think, um, and it's our responsibility as, as climbers specifically as like outdoor recreationalists. And then just two other quick points is that, um, a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, just in the climbing community have always talked about, you know, in talk being the main point I've talked about their values as, you know, their political values, their, um, social emotional values, um, and they, they, again, separate it like the, they have their climbing and then they have these these values that they talk about. And for me, I'm about action. Like, what does that action look like? And a lot of times we go right to like presidential elections, but there is a lot of steps for action before that. And it really starts like if you want to practice these values that we talk about, you have to practice them, in my opinion, in the areas that you show up in. So you're. Uh, where you're employed, your family, um, your hobbies. Like if you can practice these within the realms that you have influence, then like that's a great way to move forward and like, okay, and if we're looking at larger community organizing, if we're looking at the political landscape, then I can kind of move out. But if you don't know how to practice that within your direct community and um, that you're involved in, then it's going to be really hard to be effective on the larger scale. Um, and then lastly, like, I, and this is a big thing that I talk about personally is like, I am a part of the climate culture and I need to be represented. These values that I hold need to be represented. And it's kind of up to me to like share what those are and advocate for those because climbing culture as it's existed has, has really just represented the dominant culture, which springs from white males. It was specifically in a, in a privileged position. So if I want the climbing culture to change, I really have to advocate, hey, this is this is a value that's important to me. Social justice, environmental justice, climate justice is super important to me. And I want to make sure that as we enter the outdoor space and as we kind of um, share this community with others, that that is a part of the conversation because it's a part of my existence. Um, so yeah, that kind of directs a lot of um, why this matters to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of, I, I have three points in mind as well, and they kind of echo what, what Kenji and Bethany said, but maybe reframe them. And the, the first one is, it's really simple, which is just a, and this is what y'all have already said, but I just feel like we have a moral imperative as human beings to work towards a better society, regardless of what our particular field is or what our interests are, or who we are. So, you know, that's to me, number one. It's just like we, there is an ethical responsibility we all have towards social justice. But um, more specifically toward in, within climbing, you know, issues of social justice are access issues. This is not a new idea. You know, I think a lot of folks have been talking about this for a few, a few years now. But um, a closed gate, sure, that's an access issue. But feeling like you're not going to be safe at the crag, that's, def- that's, you know, that's as much of a barrier to rock climbing as not being able to physically get to the base of your climb. So, um, you know, we're the access fund. And I think we're just reimagining to some extent what access means to go beyond the obvious um, legal and physical barriers and look at the financial and cultural and transportation barriers and, and, and many others. And obviously we can't address all those. We're not equipped to address all those, but we can definitely support um, 
the broader movement that is addressing those. And then lastly, and this is, you know, more of a sort of utilitarian way of looking at it, which is why I prefer leading with the moral responsibility we have. But from a utilitarian, pragmatic point of view, you know, this country is changing. It's right now America is about um, 40% people of color. Um, and that number is going up and up and up. And if we, and pretty soon within, I think, a decade or two or something like that, um, people of color will make up the majority of this country. And if we want environmentalism and climbing and outdoor recreation to stay relevant and to have a strong constituency that advocates for public lands and advocates for climate justice and that has a voice on Capitol Hill, you know, we need to make sure that we're reaching out and we need to make sure that we're doing the work to, that, to make sure that our community uh, diversifies along with the country and can remain a powerful constituency to advocate for the things we care about. So to take a little uh, um, slightly new tack, talk about kind of a very current issue. And obviously, this has been an issue that's existed for as long as climbing has. But uh, in the last few months, it's become kind of a hot topic. Uh, Kenji and Bethany, just kind of curious, um, you know, what are your thoughts on this conversation we're having right now around potentially offensive or discriminatory root names? Yeah, that's a it's an interesting um, topic to me. I I do have a few first ascents back from the uh, the old days and in trad areas like Idlewild and um, and up in Santa Barbara, and I know how root names come up. You know, they're not very well they're not thought about very deeply um, at all. I think it's a it's been fun for first ascensionists to kind of have a theme or, you know, whatever it is, a movie or some characters or some, you know, some topic that they're interested in at the time. And it, root names reveal a lot about the, about the mindset of the person who's, who, who got the name, which is a privilege, of course. And I think that root names uh, historically have been changed um, many times for, for, I don't know about many reasons, but several different reasons. One is if the style of the route is put in differently, for example, an aid route becomes freed, it takes on a different name. If, the, um, if there are connections or uh, alternative uh, specifics around the route, like you know a direct start, for example, or it wanders over and joins a different route, that often um, requires a different name. So uh, in my experience, the naming is is kind of fluid. Like it's not it's not etched, literally etched in stone, no pun intended. So um, I see it as very uh, relatively easy to change names. I don't, there's nothing legal about anybody's ownership of a name. There's no copyright infringement. The difficulty uh, comes in in how do you how do you socialize that decision? Um, and, you know, there's print guidebooks, there's online guidebooks, there's lots of places where the names show up. And so the real difficulty is in the detail of how you, how you achieve that. And we haven't, we're still trying to figure that out, I think, as a, as a climbing community. But uh, I, I get this, I guess, I would just want to remind everybody that you know, root names get changed all the time in every place. And uh, so... That's that's the context of this whole discussion is is um, changing it for for different reasons and I think that fundamentally if we want to be appealing and be um, be more inclusive then we are going to change the names of things that make people not feel welcome I don't see any problem with that I mean 
you know, they, my, if somebody like, you know, if I, I have a root name in Idlewild, it's called, uh, what was it called? Uh, change in the weather. I don't think there's anything about that that's going to be uh, offensive. But if it were, I would absolutely, for not even one second, hesitate to change the name of it. Because in the end, I'm not attached to the name. I'm attached to the partner that I had. And, and that person has, has died at a young age. And and it reminds me of him and, you know, you know, want to honor that partnership. But it doesn't like n- neither of us were super invested in that particular name. It just happened to be, a, I think, a song on the radio or something. So I, I think there's things to be invested in and there's things that are uh, transient and naming and names are, are somewhat transient when it comes to climbing routes. It's fascinating to hear you say that names have always changed, Kenji. That's not a perspective I feel like I've heard before in this conversation. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Bethany? Yeah, it's, it's, I agree. It's, uh, it's helpful to hear Kenji's perspective, and I was really curious how you were going to answer this. Um, and I think what he's said in terms of like kind of um, what it reveals about the climbers, but also the climbing community and the climate and climbing culture as as we see it today i think as like as this topic gains momentum um i think it's a, a really an opportunity for all of us and um a lot of white climbers that you know are are kind of maybe invested in this topic are, are now able to see kind of how this climbing culture can be really damaging and I did just want to go back briefly, Peter, you mentioned kind of the events happening recently. And just, I, I just want to name that um, the the person shot was Jacob Blake. And so uh, he was a black man um, who is a black man, excuse me. And, um, you know, and the, I bring that up also one, just to name them, but also to bring it back to this, this route naming thing is that a lot of these names are, are very offensive. Um, and, and, and just, I have little tolerance for, for them. And, and some of them are a little bit more, you could consider them in the gray area. And I think the big, you know, one of the big issues around this topic is like the method at which we go about changing it. Um, and I can't really speak to that because that's, um, again, kind of not my, you know, I don't do route development. Hopefully it would be cool to see more people of color doing that. But as an impacted member in the climbing community, for me, this is a, you know, the big question that I'm kind of sitting with, and I hope other people that are listening to this sits with is like these names that are explicitly racist, homophobic, um, anti-Semitic, um, ableist, like, is this the culture that we want people to, to like enter? Like, do, do we want them to see these names as representative of us, of you and I? Um, and for me, it's, it's a hard no. Um, you know, I mentioned before, I'm a youth climbing coach and we've got some great kids, um, great kids of color, um, folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and climbing has been a huge impact in their personal development and thinking about one of my favorite places on earth is Waco tanks and thinking about taking them, um, to this place or taking them to any of these areas and having them interact with these, um, these names that can be really sexist, promoting rape culture, 
um, and having just very explicit like uh, words and then like, ugh, I feel so much <laughs> about it. Like that is their access point to the outdoors. And these are, you know, double digit climbers, um, but they're young, right? And so they have a lot of like, if we're thinking about the traditional development of like how someone has influence in the climbing culture through grades and stuff, like I don't want to promote this to them or anyone else. Um, and so for me, that's like, <laughs> that's a lot of how I view this. And um, I don't really, we've had a lot of, you know, we recently did a couple events um, with a couple of members that, of the community, um, indigenous members and, and um, Melissa Utomo, who's um, proposed um, almost a year ago, um, at least a step in the direction of addressing this. And we've had so much pushback and individually they've had pushback and have been really harassed around this topic. And, um, you know, our, we just backed kind of the letter and said, Hey, like we want to change this and, and um, really entered the conversation with, Hey, like we're part of the climate culture. We have um, skills, we have perspectives that we can bring to this conversation to help this move along and to create a more inclusive crag. And that was met with a lot of disagreement and a lot of pushback. And I, I don't see how keeping a name with like the N word or keeping a name like gangbang, um, and excuse my language again, from my personal perspective, I don't see how that needs to have pushback. Um, you know, I'm, I kind of view it again. I'm not a route developer as, as Kingji said, like there should be pride in, in the route and creativity, but I feel like the name is very secondary. And like you said, there's not a lot of thought in it. So um, this is an opportunity for us to kind of reintroduce like what, um, what culture we want to bring to the world. And I I don't want to bring that to the world. Um, So, and let's get creative about it. Um, And I just, lastly, I'll say like Aaron, um, Gilpin and Ashley um, also talked about on the event, like, what is our relationship to the land and how can we bring um, a new perspective and and appreciation to the land and the rocks that we interact with and do these names and um, this culture really reflect, like, I think the personal relationship with these areas that we all have. I mean, I've talked to climbers across the board, elite, recreational, like people of color, white people. And like, we all feel like so strongly about how climbing impacts us. And I want to take it back to that feeling. Like, what is that feeling? And that's a feeling for me. And a lot of people is it's empowerment. It's like a positive influence. It's like almost like this beautiful therapy for all of us. And like, you know, why are these names such a big deal? Um, and I think it goes back to just ego and, um, climbing isn't about your ego. If you're, if you're in it, you've been in it for 10, 20 years, even five years, you know, whatever it is, like we know very quickly the first time you fall off a route that climbing is going to knock your ego off. So, you know, how can we get back to that place where we remove our ego from this conversation say, really what's good for the community? How can we grow in this area? Um, yeah, I kind of went on, but. No, it's all good. Well, I, I kind of think in the first ascensionist mindset, ego is a big deal. And that, that you're right, that, that climbing is, is the great uh, 
the great deliverer of humble pie. But uh, in the first ascensionist mindset, it's it is it is that attempt or is it is that um, effort to become a become a legacy or create a legacy or to put your name or your stamp on the world so that when you move on, it's still there, right? And that is all about ego. And and, um, and so it, it is complex in that way, but uh, it doesn't matter. I think your point about uh, bringing new people, bringing kids, being welcoming and inclusive, this is the opportunity we have as climbers. And other activities, other recreational pursuits don't have the opportunity that we have. So, so we're in this position, we're kind of leading out, you know, we're on the sharp end when it comes to uh, healthy, uh, outdoor, responsible recreation, and including a lot more people. Because it's not, I mean, it's not super cheap, but it's much more accessible than a lot of other uh, activities that we could name. It, we have climbing gyms in hundreds of communities and, and well, at least before COVID, uh, <laughs> uh, growing at a very fast rate. So so being um, being taken advantage of by more diverse people, younger people, more women, more people from all across the spectrum, um, we really have this opportunity. And so this is a, a, a sort of a lightning moment for us. Like, what are we going to do? And it, it's very much... Um, hitting the ground, uh, the lightning is hitting the ground right in the spot where the naming is being looked at and we're struggling with how to do it. And um, and I, I see it as a bit of unconscious bias at play here. Like, uh, you know, people that have been doing this for a long time, they feel like, oh, you know, well, wait, you know, I don't want these new people telling me what to do. But and I have already had some thoughts about this. And, you know, I, I guess I struggle with it a little bit myself because I, I have been in this for a long time and and I've been doing what I can. I, I believe, you know, in the context of the Access Fund or the outdoor industry with the inclusivity luncheons or with uh, anything I've been involved in. And then suddenly there's like a whole core of people that are moving much faster. You know, I, it's kind of like climbing, like, and, you know, I, suddenly I'm not climbing very hard and there's a bunch of people climbing way harder than me. And that's a little bit of a, uh, you know, swallow my pride kind of situation. But but that's not that's not anybody else's fault. That's just my personal thing as I get older or as I get, you know, distracted by things like work and family and <laughs> important things. I think I, I'll, I'll just share this a quick story that Boone Speed, who's a you know famous climber photographer back from the from the old days, he taught me this. Uh, you know, I went and stayed with him out in Salt Lake, and we went and climbed. And I shared this thought with him, like, "Man, what is the deal with this? You know, like there's like these climbers that are been climbing for six months, and they're climbing five thirteen, and I've been climbing for ten years, and I can't climb five thirteen. Like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know." <laughs> um, discouraged or bummed or angry about this and he's like hey man climbing you're just on your own line you know just you know you're you're not you're not don't take away from them like you should be celebrating them for doing what they're doing and you're doing what you're doing and if you can do that a little bit better than you did it then that's that's the win you're not on the same line as as chris sharma or 
Adam Andra or any of these, you know, elite climbers, you're on your own line. And that was super helpful to me. And um, so sometimes we just need to get checked. For sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, I, I, and like I mentioned, I got that check from day one climbing with Ashima, which I think hopefully has made me a more humble climber. But um, there's one thing I'll, I'll add on to this root naming discussion before we uh, jump ahead is, you know, I have just gotten started as a root developer. I've started bolting new climbs uh, in Pine Creek Canyon outside of Bishop. It's been really interesting to do that in, with this conversation kind of swirling around in my head. And so I've actually been trying to do like go the opposite end. So be really intentional about about the names and and kind of make them. Uh, so, OK, I'll just give an example. You know, our, our most popular kind of training wall, summer sport climbing wall is called the Gecko Wall or the Planetarium Wall. And it's kind of got all it's got a bunch of 512s, 513s on it. And they're mostly a bunch of them are space themed. So like a lot of them are named after famous astronomers. So there's like Galileo and then there's a route called Planetarium and a route called Copernicus. And um, so this route Copernicus, I saw this opportunity for a direct start, like Kenji was mentioning. And so I bolted this direct start to this line Copernicus. And I really wanted to give the direct start a name that highlighted a a scientist who was a person of color because, you know, the only scientists and astronomers on the wall were old dead white guys who were super intelligent and influential and important. But I was like, I know that we can do, you know, we can have a brown person on this wall who made great contributions to astronomy. So I did some research and there was kind of this perfect connection where, okay, Copernicus was this very influential European astronomer, but it turns out a lot of his work um, was heavily influenced by a 14th century Muslim astronomer from Syria, whose name was Ibn al-Shatir. And it was just, it was just a perfect connection. So I named the direct start after this, um, after this man, al-Shatir, whose work influenced Copernicus. Um, and I want to keep doing that. You know, I want to, I want to name my roots. Um, if it feels appropriate, I want to name my roots something that, uh, is like, it, it, it speaks to the fact that people of color are out here putting up new lines that we are out here climbing. So, you know, I have a, my fixed line on a project right now that looks so hard, like I don't think I can climb it. And so I'm calling this this line, which I still have to finish bolting, I'm calling it the Enshallah project. And in Arabic, Enshallah means God willing. And it's a phrase used universally across the Muslim world for a million different things. It's this, this notion of Will the bus come on time? Inshallah. You know, will uh, will we get out of this dangerous situation safely? Inshallah. And so I'm looking at this this route um, up this incredible overhanging granite wall, which has just a few holds on it. It's like, man, will this line go? Will I be able to climb it? Inshallah. So, you know, I, I'm trying to find these fun ways of working in bits of culture um, into our into our climbing experience, which has been fun. And I'm trying to use that privilege as a route developer in a positive way. I love that. That's cool. I want to climb there. Yeah, 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 man. Come, come to Bishop, and I'll and I'll show you show you all the good new stuff. I want to pop in real quick, just like because I think what's happening here, like within this conversation, is really important. And sometimes um, it's important just to be explicit. Like um, each of us in this conversation, including you, Peter, come from different backgrounds and a different perspective in this topic. And like that is what this is about. Is like kind of acknowledging and making space for all of these views. Um, 
And it's not always going to, we're not always going to agree on a solution or, or an approach to something, but can we at least have the conversation can we have it respectively, um, uh, respectfully. And, and that to me is like a major point that a lot of people, um, that have pushed back on this is, are missing, um, and so I just want to be really explicit about like, this is a great example of us having a conversation from different views. Uh, I'm definitely kind of, I don't know if I'm the newer, but not as strong. So I'm not <laughs> route developing or maybe as experienced as the other folks on this call. Um, but each of you are coming from a different place in this. And so um, we're not all going to agree, but like, where are the places that we do? And like, how can we bring those perspectives into the conversations that are really challenging? Um, any any of these conversations around Jedi work and diversity and inclusion and equity are, are really difficult. And they're difficult because we're very different. Um, but that is part of the beauty of this is like, how can we work together to move all of the values in, you know, that we, I think are instilled in each one of us. We're kind of, we do agree on some things, but we, we disagree on some things and we have to have relationships in order to make this work. Um, and, and Kenji and Tamor, Peter, you're newer to me, but, um, we do have relationships. So it's a lot easier to like hold those conversations within that. And I think that it kind of gets lost in the noise that like, if we do this work of undoing white supremacy and, and, um, colonialism within ourselves, like, uh, or within the culture, like we have to start on ourselves and then we move out like to having a conversation of like, what does this look like when I have it with Kenji or Timur um, who are men of color and maybe have very different views and views that could be oppressive to me. Um, so, you know, and that's a challenge for us to, for us to have, but um, it's important that we have it and, and recognize that this is relational work. Um, yeah. I just want to say that. <laughs> no, thanks for adding that, Bethany. Super important point that relationships take time and, you know, and that's why over the course of time, I feel like this has moved slowly and sometimes there's bursts and sometimes there's backsliding and, uh, but just like relationships, right? If, whether it's family or friends or uh, mates or lovers, it's, it's, that's how it is. It's, there's no way to fast track it. There's no way to speed date and make a relationship. I mean, you can start a relationship that way. You can make an introduction that way, but relationships just take time. And, um, and so that I think is the, the unfortunate, you know, limit the limiter on how fast we can go and how fast these changes can be made. We just have to divide by time on this because of exactly what Betty just said. Relationships are the key. And they're not, um, they're not, they're not able to be fast tracked. And you know, something else that uh, Betty was talking about was being really action oriented. And so, one thing I really want us all to touch on, because um, some, you know, these conversations are so powerful and great. And then sometimes I feel like people walk away and they're like, "Okay, what can I do? Like, I want to, you know, I want to do something about this." And so, um, I just want to ask everyone, you know, what what can we as individual climbers and what can climbing organizations, local climbing organizations, nonprofits, whatever, uh, what can we do to support climbers from marginalized backgrounds? I, I think we have a great opportunity to, to uh, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I think we have a great opportunity to be inclusive. The, you know, 
the work that the Access Fund has done and, and all the local climbing organizations, over 150 nationwide, are working to preserve and increase access um, for all people to uh, come into these spaces. There's plenty of space. So this isn't like a surf break where, you know, there's a thousand people that want to paddle out and there's 20 that can. I mean, we have the space to, to accommodate if we can, you know, use some of our close to home resources, um, you know, whether you're in Colorado or LA or Seattle or um, wherever there are, there is a ton of rock and some of it's pretty good and some of it's kind of chossy, but it's uh, a great opportunity for us. So I think, um, I think welcoming people and being deliberate about that and going to where the people are. That's the big change that I've seen and that I think we need to double down on is going to where the people are and not, you know, the definition of access that the, that I grew up with, with the Access Fund and Friends of Joshua Tree, et cetera, is, well, we'll make sure the gates open when you get here. And that's even our logo, right? But I think we're changing that definition to be more action oriented, to be more uh, inclusive by deliberate action, by meaning meaning we're going into where the where people are. And we have the opportunity because of gyms, but other other things, social media clubs, for example, or meetups to go where the people are. Yeah, I, I can answer as well. I think, again, like going back to the relational work, like for me, like in my process in 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 supporting other marginalized climbers. And I say that because like, I, I have a lot of work to do and I, you know, now I'm kind of in a position of more influence. Um, but this is a, a constant effort to educate myself and, um, improve on how, and how I interact with communities and how I can advocate, um, from my position. Um, so, I mean, a big thing, like just for an example, like I am an able-bodied person. And so um, this is a big area of, of growth for me is like understanding what are some of the barriers that that climber, adaptive climbers are facing and how can I better use my space and my resources to advocate um, for a more accessible crag or more accessible, like physically accessible climbing space. Um, so for me, it's like we must start on ourselves and like understanding the type of space that we take up and how we navigate the world and how that's different from other people. Access Funding, you specifically, Timor, have um, put out a bunch of resources for folks to get connected to, to groups like Brown Girls Climb and other, and other groups, um, but also to kind of look at, yeah, some of these topics. And I think it starts with that education. Um, but also simultaneously, what can you do in the meantime? Um, for me, kind of going back to like how Access Fund shows up and how we show up outdoors, like getting involved with your LCOs and bringing this knowledge to them, um, to so to your local climbing orgs and um, and helping advocate for for this intersectional view on access. That is a big deal. I mean, we're we're enjoying these lands and we kind of take this. Uh, a lot of times this topic takes a back seat to our climbing, but it's not. I mean, I'll, you know, um, there are a lot of other issues that the park system and um, 
communities of color are facing that, you know, there's a million other topics that are more important than climbing in a lot of ways. And so, but climbing, our climbing culture as, as or our climbing community as a whole has kind of isolated ourselves. We kind of are like, this is the biggest deal because it's a big deal for us. But um, understanding like how these things interact and how we can make sure that when we, when we look into policy or, or try to, um, preserve these areas, these natural areas that can be, have great health benefits to, to many people. Um, how can we make sure this is the strongest argument possible? I mean, we're going into access fund is going into climb the hill, which is an annual event to, um, you know, introduce or, or, um, reintroduce or remind folks like these are the policies that are important to us and you know this year we're trying to as we grow i think as an organization we're continuing to like make sure that we are thinking about these things thinking about other communities that are affected and how we can incorporate this into that event and into those conversations with um with lawmakers and so um for me that's that's those are some great great first starts. Um, I'll share quickly that, you know, Waco tanks, um, to me is a really great example there was, you know, the V scaled up, got developed there. I'm sure everyone (laughs) is aware of that, but there's a lot of world-class climbing there, but the climbing community, you know, is a little bit isolated again. And there was some major pushback from the indigenous communities there historically. Um, and, and what we've seen over time is a change in policy and, and approaches to climbing access and it's affected climbing access. Um, and, you know, my first time I was trying to think about this, that first question and like, um, my first time there was, you know, when I lived in Texas and I went on a guided trip because you have to be guided there because of the indigenous history and the petroglyphs that are there, which are amazing. When I first went to that park, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like my homelands. This is incredible to see this history represented. And there are certainly other areas that you can't climb in because of, of um, the history there. And we are really lucky to still have that protected in that area. And it's it's our duty to to make sure that we, you know, follow the rules, make sure that we share how lucky we are and how um, and how beautiful these this history is, um, this indigenous history. And my first time there, I went on a guided trip and m- many other guided trips afterwards. Um, the guides there were really disrespectful about talking about the regulations there and the indigenous history and just kind of disregarding it and saying, well, you know, I can't believe we have to do this. And this is like silly. And, you know, there's climbs in that area. I don't know why it's getting shut down. And for me as a person of color, specifically as a Mexican American Chicana um, from that from Texas and knowing that these are shared homelands with indigenous and other Mexican, um, communities, I was so at, like, I was at awe about the ignorance and, like, that leadership, the lack of leadership there, that, like, hosting a space where you're actively disrespecting not only the park rules, but those communities. We should be grateful <laughs> that we can still do that, you know? Um, and, and yeah, I, I really felt, I felt personally, like, erased in that 
that group because I was with a group of climbers. So my first identity to them was as a, as a climber and not as a person of color. Um, and so I put that out there. Just I, I think it's changed over time. And luckily I went back, you know, I go back every year and it's improved and the guides, the education around the guides have improved. But, um, you know, in, in thinking about access, like it is our duty to, to understand the history of that area and, and really advocate for shared access, understanding that this benefits all of us. I think that's um, a really good insight, Beth, Bethany. I think that in Joshua Tree, for example, and, and maybe this points to Timer's question about what can what can we do, like what can a person do to uh, help and to support climbers from marginalized backgrounds. I think a lot of the LCOs, the local climbing organizations are, you know, they draw from a relatively small pool, oftentimes, or at least in the case of Joshua Tree, you know, these are long standing climbing communities that have a lot of the uh, residual effect of uh, prior generations, of whether it's naming or practices, uh, environmental or social, and helping them, meaning helping the LCOs, uh, adopt uh, a more forward in inclusive agenda, whether that's recruiting board members or help uh, with the organization. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for that. In Joshua Tree, for example, we started to uh, have a more active relationship with the tribes. So there, there's 15 tribes that call Joshua Tree uh, ancestral homelands. And so um, that's really been, I think, an eye-opening thing and being really learning a lot over a short amount amount of time through the experience of actively communicating and developing the relationships back to that term. And, um, and so I think that's part of it is, is that learning that um, sharing the space and recognizing um, everybody who's there that or that wants to be there. A lot of people want to climb in Joshua Tree, but it's kind of intimidating because it, none of it's really... Um, managed or developed in the way that uh, sport climbing was. So it's the ethics of climbing and Josh are different. Um, but I think we can still be very inclusive there. Um, the local climbing organization is the one where you can support or show up or ask how to get involved. And it's on that local climbing organization too, to reach out and become more inclusive themselves. And that's not that easy because they are sometimes in pretty remote gateway communities and um, so that's one place I think as a climber, um, people listening to this podcast can go out and get involved with the LCO. Yeah, I think that's that's such a good, like such a great place to start is in that, at that local level with your LCO. And just one thing I would add on to that is um, I think sometimes folks really want to do good. They want to do the right thing, but um, people do what they think communities of color need instead of actually asking. So for me, like just so simple, like step one is just don't, you know, just go. There's so many affinity groups right now um, around people of color and people from other marginalized backgrounds and climbing. There's, there's so many of these wonderful affinity groups all across the country. A lot of them following Bethany's lead with Brown Girls Climb and um, ask them, you know, be like, find, find your local affinity group and, and be like, Hey, you know, I really want to support you. What can I, as an individual, what can my LCO, what can we do to support your organization? Um, and it's, it's so simple, but like just asking the people who are at the heart of this, like, 
what do you actually want? What do you actually need is, is crucial. That's a great point, Tamur. And, and something that I want to encourage people to, uh, to think a little bit about is that um, I think there's a feeling like, well, you know, if we're separating off, you know, isn't that counterproductive? Isn't that sort of the opposite of unifying or of uh, inclusion? Like, you know, and I think that that's a struggle that a lot of people have. Um, and I want to encourage people to, to allow, allow groups to separate off. This is something I learned kind of after my Outward Bound days, but in my days at Nielsen. Nielsen is a, is a, a multinational media research company with thousands and thousands of employees. And today they're recognized as one of the top diverse companies in, in the country. Um, but it was, it was developing that when I worked for them, you know, they own the trade show and, and, uh, and I participated in their uh, ERGs their employee resource groups. And I learned that, you know, really the way they were doing it was very different than uh, the way Outward Bound and, and other programs uh, that I know of and, and were close to at UCLA, et cetera, were, were doing it. And they, they were in, encouraging these affinity groups to grow inside the organization, like separate off and do your thing. And here's a little bit of funding and, you know, here's some training and do your, but do your thing. If you want to have a party, if you want to bring in a speaker, if you want to uh, go on an outing, like do, do what you want. But they provided budget, they provided leadership from the top, and they allowed these organizations to organically rise up inside the company. And then they would bring these organizations together occasionally in kind of a whatever, I don't know what to call it, a conclave or a, a big group, bigger group gathering that brought together the Asian American group and the Latino, Latinx group and the LGBTQ group and et cetera. And um, we'd have these you know bigger gatherings that created the networking opportunities. And then they had this platform where there was this feeling of equitable uh, access to the leadership of the company. There was equitable um, treatment. And then you can then you can get the best of what those organizations or those ERGs have to offer. And in this case, the affinity groups and bring them together to really um, supercharge the health of the organization, especially one that is, you know, trying to be a global relevant in all communities type of media research companies. So that's the other context, I think, that that uh, we as a climate community have to look at is how do organizations, companies, and industries outside of our world of outdoor rec uh, do this? And they're, some of them are much further ahead than we are, and we can look at them as, as models. Yeah, thanks, Kenji, for saying that. And I, I do think it's, we face that question a lot of like, why does this, you know, why do we have to separate? And and why is there, you know, why does Brown Girls Climb even exist? And that, that question even is raised within our community. And so, um, yeah, for, I just want to quickly say that, like, just as a reminder, in, in terms of understanding our own history and climbing and mountaineering, like, it started with alpine clubs, right? And and that was a very exclusive um, pathway. And it, it was exclusive to white males, uh, you know, European, American, um, that, you know, it's since expanded and uh, more women and other folks are included, especially now, of course, but that is kind of the core culture. It was built on exclusivity to certain identities. And so as we think about like these groups, like Brown Girls Climb, Brothers of Climbing, Brown Ascenders, um, Transcending Seven, um, 
and other folks, adaptive climbing groups, like this is an opportunity for us to form our values and our initiatives because it hasn't traditionally been represented. It never historically was. There was actually, you know, intention for it to be very limited. Um, and so um, these these organizations and these groups, affinity spaces, allow for folks to meet together who are, again, very different from each other, like within that affinity space, within Black climbers, within Brown climbers, within Asian climbers, um, within queer climbers, you have very different views. And so these affinity spaces not only allow time for folks to just connect and be like, oh, glad you're here. Very nice to see you. Thought I was the only one. But also to say, hey, what are our shared values within this space? Because um, not every, again, not everyone's going to agree. And so when f- the organizations outside climbing orgs and, and these affinity spaces are meeting to say, hey, like, what are the values? What, how can we support you? They have a shared answer that really benefits all of them as well. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to make that point because um, one, it's important to know our history and, and why these issues are showing up. And two, um, you know, sometimes there's not that, sometimes folks are, especially white folks are not getting kind of this insider view of like, you know, what happens in these spaces? And it's usually not all about white climbers and like the oppression that we're facing. It's a lot of connection, um, but also like idea, creativity, um, time to think about like, what is, what do we need and, and how do we want to move in this space? And if we do interact with others and they're asking, um, how we can support that we have a unified answer. Oh my gosh. There is so much to unpack here. And I've been just, uh, furiously writing a ton of notes while, while you all went off on your amazing responses to these questions. And in light of everyone's time, I'll, I'll keep, keep my, uh, keep all my notes here simplified. But I think what Bethany kind of said just now wraps things up with a nice bow in a way. Just, we talked about taking steps before action, taking steps in your immediate communities before maybe branching out into the larger action pieces or action items that you can take. And I think identifying those shared values at the very start is what it, what it kind of maybe comes down to. I could see that being just those two things being steps, those very foundational steps to move forward on. I want to see what you all think about the actions that have been taken recently and what you've seen recently in the climate community that makes you optimistic. A couple examples from myself there is uh, Tensleep. I don't know if you know about this, the, the wall up at Tensleep called this formerly known as the Slavery Wall was recently renamed. The roots there were recently renamed, and there's a thread on Mountain Project in the comments for that for that cliff that are very positive, and people were pushing for this to happen, and I think it happened pretty quickly. Climbing Magazine has an article about it. I'll make sure to link to that so everyone can read it, but that was something that was very encouraging that I saw. And then just one individual, I think, that has really spoken up about this is Chris Hampton with the power company climbing. He, uh, he's a big example of this and he was all over this matter, making it very loud and clear about where he stands on it, hosting multiple podcast episodes. Bethany, weren't you on his show like a while back? Yeah, a while back. And yeah, I, you know, I, one, I want to say there is a lot of black indigenous and people of color that have been amplifying this message for a while and have been ignored, but folks like 
folks uh, at like accomplices like Chris Hampton that are doing their education and trying to say, hey, you know, I reach a white audience, white male audience primarily. How can I show up? Um, you know, he's doing a good job. He's a personal friend and I, I'm invested in that relationship and I'm proud to see um, people like him and others that have, you know, quite a bit of platform do the work um, and, and, and share the space with other, other people of color as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I, th- I appreciate he put up a post some, at one point, someone at a protest, the holding the sign, it says something to this effect. I, I might get the exact words wrong, but equality is more important than your project. I don't know if you had seen that yet or not, but I thought that was, thought that was pretty cool. So what are some actions you've seen in the climate community that make you optimistic moving forward? Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I think a lot of us are just like, finally, y'all are here. Y'all are in the conversation and we've kind of moved outside of the climbing culture bubble and, and seen what, you know, looking at these, unfortunately, like all of these videos and this resources that are coming up in the news, COVID has locked us in our chair and on our screen to where we have to face reality of the society we live in. So one, I want to say welcome to the conversation and we are glad that you're here and you're learning. Um, I think for me, that's the biggest thing that people are recognizing what is happening and that there is real, real issues that, that we're facing. And, you know, we may feel, feel helpless, but there are ways that you can push this conversation in the climbing community, and hopefully um, that will move out to other places that you're you're living. So for me, that's the biggest thing is education and kind of an undoing of, of how we take up space. I think for me, um, so just through my work at Access Fund, almost right after George Floyd's death, I just started talking with so many LCOs and they were reaching out to me, you know, like they had seen uh, maybe an article we put on our blog or something else. And now, you know, a few months in and I've talked to, I don't know, 10 or 15 different LCOs from all across the country. And so for me, it's been just really, really encouraging to see totally on their own initiative. Um, LCOs from, you know, from California to West Virginia, to the Northeast, to the deep South, to the, to the mountain, Rocky mountain region, just all over the country. All these LCOs have been um, calling me up being like, Hey, we want, we care about these issues. We want to get involved. We want to, we want to change root names. We want to support our members of color. We want to diversify our boards. And um, just seeing such a sudden surge in enthusiasm and buy-in from these local community leaders. And really that's where the change is going to happen, you know, ground up in these local communities growing and growing has been very encouraging for me. Yeah, and I think that I've been uh, optimistic for so many reasons. Uh, I do see it as, you know, there's a, a fair amount of foundation building that's been going on for some years that has enabled this time, at least in the climate community. Obviously, the the larger social movement is uh, as a tidal wave that's sweeping over all industries and all communities, and that's that's extremely powerful. Um, but I do think that the climate community, like I said before, it's it's uh, special in how it's positioned to be relevant to more way more people than a lot of other of our kind of adventure sports outdoors core groups. You know, the kayakers and surfers and um, backpackers and mountaineers. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we um, we like to get out and in into nature and engaging. And, but I think climbing has a specific 
uh, and special opportunity. So I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think the timing is so great. And uh, and just a shout out to the Access Fund. I mean, I know that uh, we're all part of it, and it's uh, but it's important to recognize good work and th- those relationships that Betty talked about that have been developed over a long period of time and not not always very uh, smoothly. I mean, you know, there's a lot of mistakes and errors and certainly one of the flashpoints that I won't go too deep into, but when we did Climb the Hill uh, several years ago and there was a panel of pro climbers and, a, and, a, and we were in the Senate hearing room and it was a big deal and there was a, gar- an, a, 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 there was a reporter from The Guardian there and he asked a really hard question, like, isn't this about you guys protecting your own private Idaho, your own backyards that you just want to keep to yourselves and not really include other people. And the whole panel just fumbled. Like they just didn't know how to answer that question. And there were very many people in the room that could have answered it very differently, but just didn't get called on. And, you know, that was a, that was a really impactful moment, not just that moment, but later when we were talking and there was a lot of discussion and a lot of dissent and anger and questions. But what came out of that, I think, is instructive. And I think that that's what I'd like to just wrap with is that, you know, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fumble. We're going to not know what to do. We're going to do the wrong thing sometimes. We're not going to get it perfect, but we're going to keep going and we're going to continue to be more and more inclusive. And we're going to um, do the best we can. We're going to ask a lot of good questions along the way. That's how we're going to do it. And um, I think we invite um, all climbers to to take that approach, to be curious and to go after those relationships um, and understand that there's going to be some awkwardness and some some maybe even some backslides, but that we're pushing forward because because we can and we know what that feels like as climbers. We know what what it's like to be on the sharp end. Sometimes you're going to fall off and you're going to need to get back on and keep going. So that's what we're doing. Oh boy, this was a tough one to consolidate all of my notes and thoughts and takeaways that I had from this from this conversation today. But first, I guess I want to encourage all of you to take what you learned here and start to rethink about what access means. It is indeed more than just a physical gate saying open or closed to a climbing area. But it also includes providing a welcoming environment for the people who might not have felt welcome at the crag or the boulders at first. And I found this community to be so nice and welcoming, much more so than other outdoor sports I do or have been involved in in the past. And my hope is that everyone can feel the same way I do when they head outside. And what we had here today was a respectful conversation. It didn't lead, you know, of course, into an argument, which I think so many conversations can lead to when talking about sensitive subjects such as this one. But everyone here is coming from a different background with different experiences. So if you open your heart and mind to these unique experiences everyone has, I think those respectful conversations can continue to be had and everyone can be respected. And that would lead into cultivating those relationships that Bethany uh, emphasized so much. And as she also said, we have values in our climbing. So let's take these values that we hold in our climbing and translate them to our social values as well. And then practice those values close to home and in the areas you most closely show up in. Work, home, 
other social gatherings, whatever it might be, you know, practice what you preach, talk the talk and walk the walk. And then Tamora said something pretty early on in the conversation that really struck me. And that's, we have a moral imperative as human beings to move towards a better society. And I think this statement can be applicable in so many different ways. A better society, you know, relating to how you treat people, how you treat the environment, you know, how, how we can strive better towards a better climate situation, and then towards bettering our climbing resources as well. So I would like to leave this here. Like I, I see this as a three-step process. First is to listen. And if you listen, you can learn. And once you learn, you can understand. And I've said this, I think, in a, in a couple other episodes. Listen to understand. Don't listen to reply. So I'll leave everyone with that. And if you really enjoyed what you heard today, please go ahead and share this with your friends. Get on your social channels and blast it out there. Share it with friends, family, whoever you might think might benefit from listening to this. And jump on Apple Podcasts there. Leave a glowing review. Leave a glowing comment on the show. I'd greatly appreciate it. That helped me out a ton. And yeah, I'll be back here in a few weeks. I got an episode recorded and lined up to come out just a little bit before the presidential election in the beginning of November. So in the meantime, have fun, stay safe out there, and I'll catch you all here soon. Take care.